Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today's podcast delves into the program central to FDR's New Deal. Today's guest, Neil Mayer, history professor at New Jersey Institute of Technology and author of Nature's New Deal, the Civilian Conservation Corp and the Roots of the American Environmental Movement, has a conversation with our very own Gene Anzanakis about the insight of these New Deal programs. Without further ado, we'll turn it over to our resident history expert, Gene Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. Today, we're going to talk about the New Deal. In his inaugural address, FDR promised to act swiftly in order to help the nation face the dark realities of the moment. Upon taking office, FDR wasted no time in implementing his plan for economic recovery, which, of course, would come to be known as the New Deal. When we talk of the New Deal, we often link it to the three R's, relief, reform, recovery. The Great Depression caused widespread unemployment and poverty. So FDR's first priority was to provide relief to those in need. He implemented a variety of programs, such as the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which we're going to talk a bit about later on, and the FERA, the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which aimed to create jobs and to provide financial assistance to those struggling the most. FDR's background as a lawyer and his understanding of economics also formed his approach to tackling the Great Depression. He believed in the power of government intervention in order to stimulate economic growth and to create stability. To this end, he implemented a series of reforms and regulations that aimed to prevent another economic collapse in the future. One of the most significant pieces of legislation passed during this time was the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated commercial and investment banking, and it aimed to prevent another stock market crash. First and foremost, FDR aimed to provide immediate relief to those suffering the most from the effects of the Great Depression. His administration implemented a range of programs designed to alleviate poverty and unemployment. He believed people needed a help out, not a handout. He knew from his own diagnosis with polio that, you know, through no fault of your own, something can happen and completely turn your life upside down. One of the most well-known initiatives was the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which provided jobs to young unemployed men in conservation and environmental projects. This not only provided employment opportunities, but it also helped to preserve and restore America's natural resources. I want to take a considerable amount of time on the CCC. I think it's one of the lesser talked about New Deal programs. It was also one of the New Deal programs that FDR was most proud of. Today, we're joined by Neil Mayer, a history professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and acclaimed author. He's written multiple books, but his book, Nature's New Deal, The Civilian Conservation Corps and the Roots of the American Environmental Movement is the focus of our discussion today. Let's just get right into our discussion. You know, when it comes to the New Deal, it's hard to focus on the specific programs because there is always this time constraint. And for students, they know the heavy hitters, right? They'll talk about the Social Security Act. They'll talk about the FDIC. 
they'll talk about the TVA a bit. And people kind of refer to it as that alphabet soup, those those various government agencies that are created in the 1930s by FDR and his administration. But they don't know the environmental impact that the New Deal had on the United States. Can you discuss the CCC, its goals, how it functioned, and its overall success? Sure. I, I think what you said is really important. I mean, in, in one of his earliest fireside chats on May 7th in 1933, I think Franklin Roosevelt explained how nature and the environment were going to play into his, his New Deal, because he begins that chat by talking about the crisis that was on everybody's mind. He's talking about the economic crisis. 25% of Americans unemployed, one in four working age Americans with no jobs, 9,000 banks shutting down. But at the same time, he also mentioned a second crisis that was on his mind. And he mentioned flooding along rivers due to deforestation. He mentioned that the national forests were being depleted. Um, and then he also talked about soil erosion. So there were really two crises in his mind at the very beginning of the, the Great Depression. And he said that he could try to solve both of those simultaneously through work programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps, conservation programs that put young men to work. As he put it, he said, we can kill two birds with one stone by programs like the CCC. So what he meant by that was that you could actually create a work program and put millions of young men to work, in this case, young men, and we can talk later about the problems around that. But we, he could kill two birds with one stone. He could put millions of young men to work planting trees, stopping soil erosion, and building parks. And it would not only give them jobs and provide money to them and their families, but it was all it also helped to restore our natural resources. So the idea was that he could, you know, try to solve those crises together. For the CCC, you know, a lot of, I guess, the pushback that people had with the New Deal in general was that you're spending all of this money. It's it's an right. overreach of government. How do you justify this spending during a time where people don't have food to eat, but we're saying, oh, we're going to spend all this money planting trees and draining swamps? I think it was one of the um, ways that Roosevelt was sort of very, very much before his time. I mean, in some ways, he was really taking a neoliberal approach in the sense that he was showing how conservation could actually infuse the economy with money. Um, so first of all, he paid these young men a dollar a day. So they were getting a dollar a day, $25 of that monthly wage of $30 went home to their families. So it was helping their families get through the Great Depression. And the other $5 that they had went in their pockets, which they then spent at local communities. So it was helping the local economy in nearby communities. On top of that, each camp that these young men were in, they were stationed in 200 man camps about 1,400 of them spread all over the country, and they were near local communities. And, and the camps bought goods and services from those local communities, about $5,000 worth per month. So that would mean that about $60,000 of federal money was flowing from those camps into local communities and local economies. So if a community had five or six camps nearby, that was you know $300,000 a year going from the federal government to these yeah. camps and into local people's pockets. So people forget that it wasn't just spending money. The money was finding its way to Americans who were out of work and needed that funding. And I also think it's important to note that programs like the CCC were addressing issues that already existed. A lot of the environmental issues that people are starting to take notice of in the late 20s and the 1930s are all a direct 
consequence from industrialization. Exactly. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, what Roosevelt was very much involved in what was then called the Progressive Era Conservation Movement. Um, this movement was um, a group of people um, who felt that industrialization had sort of run amok, had sort of gone too far. We were cutting down too many of our forests for wood. We were using up our agricultural land willy-nilly and not really thinking about soil erosion. Um, and then also we were using up water um, in ways that was inefficient as well. And these progressive era conservationists around the turn of the century, 1910 or so, they came together and said, look, we got to think about this, not because they wanted us to stop using natural resources, rather because they wanted us to be able to continue using those natural resources for economic benefit. They said, we have to use them rationally and use them efficiently so we can keep using them and keep using them for our economy. So this movement was very, very important. And Franklin Roosevelt was very involved in that and actually undertook conservation at his, his childhood home in Hyde Park, where he his farm was suffering from soil erosion. He planted between 20 and 30,000 trees a year to try to stop soil erosion there. Um, and then he continued that when he became senator and governor in New York and then brought it with him uh, to the federal level um, you know, when he became president. So there were all these problems. There was a whole group of people who were aware of these environmental problems, and Franklin Roosevelt really tried to grapple with them throughout his political career. Yeah, and I think people don't always associate that term with that Roosevelt. I think people exactly. tend to link Teddy Roosevelt with conservationism, which he was. I mean, he, I mean, the reason why we have all the national parks we have today is a testament to Teddy Roosevelt. But FDR also played a big hand in that as well. And it's it's nice for people to know the impact that he had. And there was a little bit of a difference between what Teddy Roosevelt was proposing and what Franklin Roosevelt was proposing. Teddy Roosevelt was propose, proposing the preservation of land for parks, for outdoor recreation, right? Franklin Roosevelt was really proposing something different, the conservation of natural resources. And during this period, there was sort of a, sort of a divide between people who proposed one or the other, and sometimes they overlap. But I think that Fra Franklin Roosevelt really is sort of the unsung hero here because he was he was proposing both both, you know, let's preserve our parks and build them up so people can go into them, you know, build hiking trails and shelters and visitor centers through the CCC. But let's also plant trees so we can conserve our natural resources. Yeah. I mean, if you look at just the prior three decades from 1900 to 1930, the United States is really growing without abandon. We mm -hmm. have all of these technological advances. We're using natural resources in a way that we hadn't had you know, 20 years earlier than that. And so it becomes really a hot button issue of saying, hey, if we want to continue this growth, if we want to reach that stage of being a world power, we're going to need to to look at what we have and make sure that we can continue to utilize right. it. That's why it's so interesting that some people think of Franklin Roosevelt as a, a socialist or a communist, which is, you know, it's, that's not the case. He was really trying to conserve natural resources so that our economy would continue to function. Another one of the biggest criticisms that I think people had and still have with the New Deal is that it did not help Black and white Americans right. equally. Why didn't, or it's probably better to say, why couldn't? Because sure. you have to think of the political landscape right. at the time and socioeconomic relations within the, within the United States. Why couldn't FDR 
have pushed for programs to hire Black Americans in greater numbers. And I think we also want to, you know, not forget women as well in there. Yeah. Um, so let's maybe tackle one at a time. So the reason that um, originally when he proposed the CCC, African Americans represented about 10% of the nation's uh, population. So what he did was he said that 10% of each state's enrollee numbers for the CCC would go to African Americans. So he actually did try to reserve a proportional number of spots for African-Americans. But then what happened was they got placed in segregated camps, camps that were both separate and unequal. And it was very difficult for them to move up administratively in those camps so they could join the CCC, but not you know, a benefit as they moved up the, the ladder. Um, additionally, some communities really opposed African-American camps from moving in nearby, being stationed nearby. Um, until they realized how economically valuable they were. Um, and the reason Roosevelt did this and the reason it was not a fully integrated program was partly because the, our society was not integrated then, but also Roosevelt needed the South for his democratic, democratic coalition. And if he pushed too hard on this issue, um, he would lose um, some of the, the, the votes um, and support from the South. Uh, which is really unfortunate. The reason he didn't include women is because the economy was really thought of as supporting male breadwinners in each family. And that was the reason it was an all-male program um, to try to um, keep uh, the men uh, employed so they could take care of their families. There was one camp or a couple camps, but one that I know of called Camp Terra that was a camp for women. And it was created because Eleanor Roosevelt pushed for women in being included. Um, and they didn't teach the young women how to conserve natural resources. They taught them home economic skills like cleaning and cooking and taking care of their children. Um, so, uh, and then also you had Native Americans who were in separate camps as well. They were not housed in camps. They lived at home and then moved to their work sites each day and then went home at night. So again, separate and unequal. So there were a lot of problems with the way the camp was run, the way the program was run. I have, I want to piggyback on two things that you mentioned. The first is I, I'm glad that you brought up Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, she was a big part of FDR's administration. She was utilized tremendously. She was incredibly popular. She did a lot of great things on her own, mm -hmm. um, especially for the United Nations. And it's so interesting that you have on the one hand, so many years earlier in the 1930s and 40s that Eleanor Roosevelt, and she, and she, not to say that she did not have her critics. She of 100% did. Mm -hmm. But on the political landscape, she's really celebrated and she's embraced for the most part. Whereas decades later in the 1990s, you have Hillary Clinton, who is also in the forefront yep. of hit her husband's administration, and she is not embraced. She right. is not welcomed. And a lot mm -hmm. of the programs she looked to push through were really stalled because I think people did not take too kindly to her involvement. Yeah. I think that part of it is that I think Eleanor Roosevelt was working within some assumptions about how women should function. You know, I think what was really happening was that Eleanor Roosevelt was working sort of not behind the scenes, but behind her husband and sort of supporting her husband once in a while spoke out where I, I think Hillary Clinton was working on her own and became a politician in her own right. And I think people were just more threatened by a woman taking that sort of action like Hillary Clinton took sort of- Agreed. You know, in a more forceful way. Agreed. In other words, Eleanor sort of did it in a in a subtle way, a sort of way that was a little bit behind the scenes. And in the 30s, that was accepted, although she had her critics back then too. And I think Hillary Clinton um, 
did it in a in a more forceful way, a way that I think was completely correct for the time. And I think that there were just people out there who weren't ready for that. Yeah, I think people yeah. recognized that Hillary Clinton was looking to make a political name for herself, whereas Eleanor Roosevelt wasn't necessarily trying to do the same thing. And it's so interesting to see two very strong women each in their own time and are looked at very differently yes. through that yeah. maybe a similar historical lens because there's yeah. still that that look of hey nope not yet not for you right. you know right. both for both of them <laughs> yes yeah. and the other thing i wanted to talk about and it and i always tend to kind of harp on it because i don't think people really understand the impact that a lack of term limits have on the political landscape you know you mentioned how one of the reasons why he didn't or couldn't support the hiring of Black Americans or even women, as you mentioned, in higher numbers was because he needed that Southern support, that block of the, you know, the Democratic South. People are not going to do things in government unless it's politically advantageous for them to do so, regardless of how necessary it is or how right it is. If it's not going to be to be politically popular, they're not going to do it. And it really becomes, I mean, I think a great way to look at it is, is if you look at uh, a team and instead of the, the, the name on the front being the most important name, whatever the team name is, it's the name on the back. How do right. I further myself, my individual goals? And without term limits, and, and there wasn't a term limit for president. There is right. a precedent of a term limit, but there is no legal obligation for FDR to step down, which, of course, he doesn't. He's the longest serving president in U.S. history. And so this need for reelection stops him from doing things. You know, one of the things, you know, we're going to get into in another podcast in our series of Roosevelt is anti-Semitism in the United States. You know, people seem to think anti-Semitism was something that was in Europe, but it was very much so in the United yeah. States. You have these Nazi rallies in, in Madison Square Garden. You have people who share anti-Semitic views in the State Department. So it, it's not politically advantageous for him to accept Jewish refugees from Europe. It's not politically advantageous for him to hire uh, a greater number of Black Americans within New Deal agencies because the political support isn't going to be there. Right. And as long as we have no term limits in the legislative branch, you're going to have these career politicians who are going to only further their own name as right. opposed to what the goal should be of the people they represent or, yeah. you know, the country as a whole. So it becomes a very slippery slope when you talk about that. And and interestingly, I think in a, on a similar vein, Franklin Roosevelt used his conservation programs in a very political way. Um, in a sense, what he did was with the CCC, he, he knew that these camps were economically valuable in certain districts, especially with, with local communities. So he would reward his allies, people who were supporting the New Deal, he would reward them by putting a lot of camps in their districts, which would have money flowing into their local communities. And then he would punish his opponents by removing those CCC camps um, from those districts. So, uh, you know, I, uh, he, he was very politically savvy about how to use his programs to further his own political, his political agenda. Yeah, there's no greater example of that than, I mean, I'm a New Yorker mm -hmm. of uh, former Mayor LaGuardia 
he right. was great at siphoning money to New York. Right. Um, and, you know, he, something of like, it's uh, egregious of like one seventh of the entire WPA's budget came to New York. Wow. And I mean, and as a New Yorker, I mean, I certainly have benefited from that quite a bit, but that's what it was. If you were a governor, if you were a mayor who was very savvy in that sense and were smart enough to play the game, you garnered enough money for your state, for your city to have all sorts of projects being done. You know, the Triborough Bridge, for example, was mm-hmm. built in, in New York during that time. Right. With I'm a, I'm a New Yorker that too, money. I totally agree. You yeah. know, it, it's it's very interesting how that was yeah. done and how it's still done, you know, to this day. What yeah. do you say about the legacy of programs like the CCC sure. or the yeah. TBA? I mean, I think you got to talk about the successes and then also some of the, the failures, right? So the successes were pretty amazing. Um, economically, 3 million jobs given to young men, all that money pouring into local communities. Um, Conservation-wise, 2 billion trees were planted by the CCC. That's more trees planted in U.S. history up to that time. I'm sorry, one half the trees planted in U.S. history up to that time, or 12 trees for every Depression-era American. 40 million acres of farmland, was uh, the soil was conserved on those, those lands. 800 new state parks built from the ground up and every park, every national park in the nation had its infrastructure improved. Um, The CCC transformed a land area larger than the state of California. So a massive, massive program. And uh, today when we go out in any state park in the country, most national parks, we are walking and hiking and camping in trails, campgrounds, and walking into visitor centers that were built by the CCC. So the landscape is just its legacy. It's everywhere around us. Um, you know, but there are also some ever errors. We've talked about its exclusion of women. Um, it excluded older men. Um, it segregated its camps for African Americans and Native Americans. But also environmentally, there were errors as well. We have to remember in the 1930s, the the science of ecology was in its infancy. And people didn't know, scientists didn't know what they know now. So, for instance, the CCC drained a lot of swamps for mosquito control to try to control diseases. And that um, hurt uh, migratory birds. It hurt biodiversity. It planted invasive species to stop soil erosion, like kudzu, a Japanese uh, plant that took over certain ecosystems and and, uh, made them... Um, you know, much less uh, healthy as well. It built roads through wilderness areas, right? So a lot of criticism around its environmental uh, its environmental um, efforts now, today. But of course, we didn't know that back then, which suggests, you know, what can we do to try to create a new and improved CCC, right? How do we build yeah. on the successes, but avoid some of those, those pitfalls? You know, it's interesting because it's created in a way to address some of the issues caused by industrialization. And in dealing with those issues, it addressed or caused a number of different issues that I don't think people saw coming. And it was to lack of understanding and knowledge of, you know, what the snowball effect would be of that. Exactly. It's all connected, right? The the ecosystem science was was so young then that we didn't really understand that if you drained swamps over here, it could affect birds that were, you know, 2000 miles away or, yeah. 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 I I mean, I don't, I mean, I always liken history to, you know, a ripple effect from a raindrop, you know, Mm -hmm. so one thing will happen and it will kind of hit the surface and you'll see that ripple effect on the top of the water, but you don't necessarily take the time to see everything that's happening 
underneath. So everything is being affected by that one little push, that one decision, that one event. And, you know, it's very much so the same with this. I use that, I use that uh, analogy, that metaphor in my book about a ripple in a pond and how the, the impact of the civilian conservation course spread out further and further and further from the local community to the nation to, you know, yeah. internationally as well. Yeah. It's, it's so incredibly important. And I, and I don't know if enough people go to state parks, national parks to really take in the beauty of it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm a mother. I have two children. I I'm very big on taking them to places and seeing areas that are, or what I always say to them is untouched. Mm-hmm. You know, if we could travel back in time, right. And we could go to any part of the United States, it might look a lot like this. But today, of course, we see all these big buildings and we have roads and we have cars and we have airplanes. But once upon a time, it looked like this. And it's it's taking a snapshot of history and being able to go back in time. And I wish people, I mean, not to say I, I would not call myself outdoorsy. My husband would laugh at that, you know, description of me. I'm not by any means. Um, but I'm very big with taking them to places to really see it for themselves. I think that it's important to embrace both types of places. I, I love that idea of taking, I have children too. I take them into the, into the wilderness and try to get them to appreciate that. But I also think it's important for all of us to appreciate the nature right in our backyard or in our town square, because that is a really important relationship we have too, right? That's, that's, it's been transformed. It's been changed. Um, We have to make sure it's not degraded and unhealthy, but I think that having a a relationship to all different types of nature, both the wild and the the more cultural, it's essential. It's important. And to see them as, as both important to, to us functioning in a healthy way. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, I think it's nature in our backyard is, is equally important as the nature in the wilderness. Sure. Yeah. Conservation is still a hot topic today. Do you think that FDR was ahead of his time in regards to the steps he took? I think that um, he was ahead of his time uh, sort of by making conservation economically uh, beneficial. So he was paying these young men, these communities were benefiting the the economy was benefiting overall by these resources that could then be used in the future. So in a sense, he was supporting the market. He was trying to help the market. It it could be seen as sort of a a neoliberal sort of nod. So in that sense, I think he was successful. Have the federal government play a role in these conservation efforts, because sometimes um, these problems are so big that if it's left to local communities, it, it might not happen. I think where he might have been a little bit not ahead of his time was in the sense of the, of the issue of equity. So we talked about this before, certain people not being involved, um, but also certain regions were not really um, benefiting from the CCC. For instance, urban areas really did not benefit from the CCC's work. And I think if, the, if there was a new and improved CCC today, we would have to adjust that. It would have to focus on, you know, not only planting trees and stopping soil erosion, but also things like remediating toxic waste sites or working in cities to try to alle- alleviate lead in people's drinking water um, or, uh, you know, working with local communities and cities to build, you know, safe and healthy gardens that they could use. So I think that there's an environmental justice component here that uh, obviously Franklin Roosevelt could not be aware of because that was not on anyone's radar back in the 1930s. Um, but today, I think for a new and improved CCC to truly function, 
they would need to take in that equity issue. And then the other the other big you know elephant in the room here is climate change, right? We didn't know about climate change back then. We know about it now. So a new and improved CCC could be put to work on um, mitigating the effects of climate change, like restoring wetlands and building green sewage systems, and also creating green energy systems, like developing solar and wind power um, in a way that would allow us to decrease the amount of carbon that we're we're pumping into the atmosphere. So there's a lot of cool ways that a new and improved CCC could could help us with new problems that we're facing, you know, today. Yeah. It's so interesting. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me today. And, well, thank you uh, so much for hope- you know talking and, and being so interested in history and also sort of telling these great stories, which is what, what it's all about. A big thank you to our guest, Neil Mayer, for opening our eyes to the impact the CCC had. I hope that when our listeners talk of the New Deal, they will now include the CCC. In terms of New Deal goals, FDR sought to stimulate economic recovery by jumpstarting the nation's stagnant economy. To achieve this, he implements a series of measures aimed at promoting business growth and creating jobs. One of the key programs in this regard was the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. This program provided employment for millions of Americans through public works projects, such as the construction of roads, bridges, public buildings. These projects not only put people back to work, but it also helped to improve the country's infrastructure. FDR also aimed to institute long-term reforms that would prevent future economic crises and provide a safety net for all Americans. He recognized the need for financial regulations to prevent the excesses of Wall Street from causing yet another economic collapse. To address this, FDR implemented the Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC. It still exists today. It was created to regulate the stock market and to restore confidence in the financial system. Additionally, he introduced the Social Security Act, which created a social insurance program to provide retirement benefits, unemployment assurance, and assistance to those with disabilities. The SSA was founded in 1935, and it has evolved over time. In 1939, for example, the program was expanded in order to include survivor benefits. And what that means is that it provided assistance to the survivors of a deceased worker's dependents. Before that, if the head of the household, let's say the father of a family died and he had three young children, it was like, oh, that's too bad. What are you going to do? But after the survivor benefits was put into place, the family would receive those payments. In 1956, it was amended further to include disability benefits. Individuals who are unable to work due to physical or mental impairments can receive benefits. In 1965, the establishment of Medicare and Medicaid helped provide health care coverage to the elderly and to low-income individuals. And when we get up to that time period in history, we will go in depth into those programs. The New Deal also dealt with the banking crisis. The FDIC was created in 1933. Its purpose was clear and simple, to instill stability and confidence in the banking system by providing insurance for depositors' funds. The assurance 
that you would get your money back, it would be there, encouraged Americans to once again deposit their money into a bank account. As the value of bank deposits increased over time, the coverage that the FDIC provided was also increased. In 1934, it went up from $2,500 per account to $5,000 per account. During the financial crisis of 2008, the insurance coverage increased from $100,000 per account to $250,000 per account. I feel like we brought this up in another podcast. We did. when We talked about the stock market crash. Yes. Yes. See? Good memory. History teacher. Another key program of the New Deal was the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, which aimed to develop the resources of the Tennessee Valley region. The TVA focused on improving navigation of rivers, controlling floods, and providing electricity to rural areas. By building dams and hydroelectric power plants, the TVA created jobs, they improved infrastructure, and it provided affordable electricity to millions of Americans. Another program I want to discuss is the National Industrial Recovery Act, the NIRA, which sought to promote industrial recovery and stabilize wages and prices. Under the NIRA, industries were encouraged to establish codes of fair competition, which then set standards for wages, working conditions, and production. The NIRA also created the Public Works Administration, the PWA, which funded the construction of public infrastructure projects such as schools, hospitals, and highways. I know throughout New York City, the five boroughs, many of the school buildings that New York City public school children attend were built during the Great Depression. That's why many of them are crumbling now. They all look the same. They all look the same, yes. To address the high unemployment rate, FDR established the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, which provided jobs for millions of Americans. The WPA employed workers in a variety of sectors, including construction, the arts, and education. Through the WPA, important infrastructure projects were completed. Public art was commissioned. Writers and historians were employed to document, to preserve America's cultural heritage. Very, very interesting programs here. The New Deal also prioritized the agricultural sector as farmers were particularly hit hard by the Great Depression. And in fact, farmers were hit before the common average citizen. You know, when people started complaining about things during the Great Depression, farmers were like, hey, welcome to the party. These are, these are things we've been dealing with for quite some time. The Agricultural Adjustment Act, the AAA, aimed to stabilize crop prices and to increase farmers' incomes. Under the AAA, farmers were paid to reduce production, to destroy excess crops and livestock, and doing that helped to increase the agricultural prices and to provide financial relief for struggling farmers. You know, just to kind of give you some context, so, you know, destroying excess crops and livestock makes some sense. When World War One ended, you know, America was no longer feeding the world. People are no longer at war. People can grow crops and we're overproducing. So the supply is outweighing the demand. So that's why destroying excess crops and livestock 
made sense economically. The New Deal, while lauded for its boldness and its ambition, was not without its critics and without its controversies, many of them we discussed with Neil. Many people argued that the government intervention advocated by FDR went against the principles of individualism and free market capitalism. They believed that the New Deal represented an overreach of government power and it threatened the foundations of American democracy. Critics argued that the New Deal created a dependency on government assistance and it stifled individual initiative. They believe the programs and policies of the New Deal, such as the WPA, for example, and the Social Security Act, the SSA, that those two programs particularly undermined the work ethic and discouraged personal responsibility. These critics saw the New Deal as a step towards socialism and they started, you know, ringing the bells and and wanting to call people's attention to the dangers of having an all-powerful government. There's certainly something to be said about that. On the other hand of the political spectrum, critics argued that the New Deal did not go far enough in addressing systemic inequalities and it failed to provide adequate relief to those in need. They believed that FDR should have implemented more radical reforms, such as nationalizing industries and redistributing wealth. These critics saw the New Deal as a missed opportunity to create a more equitable society. There were also controversies surrounding specific New Deal programs. The Agricultural Adjustment Act, for example, the AAA, that was criticized for benefiting large landowners at the expense of small farmers and sharecroppers. The program paid farmers to reduce production and to destroy crops, leading to higher prices, but it also exacerbated the plight of those who relied on agriculture for their livelihoods. And of course, a lot of what we discussed with Neil Mayer, the fact that Black Americans, women, Native Americans were not hired equally through New Deal programs. We're not paid the same amount through New Deal programs. So it deserves its criticisms. The Supreme Court also played a role in the criticism and the controversy surrounding the New Deal. In a series of rulings, the court declared some of FDR's programs unconstitutional. They argued that they exceeded the scope of federal power. FDR responded by proposing what is more commonly known as his court packing plan. Now, if you listen to our discussion on FDR's presidency with Jeffrey Urban, we talked about how FDR was looking to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. FDR hoped he would be able to appoint additional Supreme Court justices who would hopefully be sympathetic to his policies. His move was widely criticized as an attempt to undermine the separation of powers and to manipulate the judiciary for his political gain. He was not allowed to increase the number of justices at that time, but he was able to appoint new justices through natural attrition. People died, people retired. Despite the criticism and the controversy, the New Deal had a profound and lasting impact on American society. It laid the groundwork for a more active role of the federal government in the economy, and it established important social safety net programs that still exist today. 
The New Deal also transformed the relationship between the government and the American people. It fostered a sense of trust and reliance on government assistance during times of crisis. Again, FDR was a firm believer that people needed a help out, not a handout. Thank you for listening to U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. Tell your friends about our podcast and where you learn all this great stuff about U.S. history. Follow us on social media and get onto our email list to learn about special events. They're coming up again. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.